0: The Nature Podcast is supported by Nature Plus, a flexible monthly subscription that grants immediate online access to the science journal Nature and over 50 other journals from the Nature Portfolio. More information at go.nature.com plus. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
1: In an experiment.
0: Why is it so far?
2: Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding.
3: Nature. Welcome back to the Nature podcast. This week we'll be hearing about the latest advances in heart xenotransplants
0: and finding out how soil bacteria fight phages. I'm Shamni Bundel,
3: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. First up on the show this week,
4: reporter Noah Baker has been taking the pulse of heart transplants. The first human heart transplant was performed in 1967 in Cape Town. This pioneering feat was unfortunately unsuccessful, and the patient died within a few weeks. But as time went on, techniques were improved, outcomes became more favourable. Fast forward to 1981, and Bruno Reichart carried out Germany's first successful heart transplant.
1: That started the renewal of heart transplantation in Germany, because everybody thought, if such a stupid guy can do it, uh, we can do it as well. Eh?
4: Bruno went on to do Germany's first heart-lung transplant and became the president of the International Federation for Heart and Lung Transplantation.
1: One of my first patients is still alive after, I think, 35 or 36 years now.
4: Nowadays, more than 5,000 heart transplants are performed every year around the world. But waiting lists are growing, and it's becoming more and more difficult to find donor hearts for those in desperate
1: need. Well, it's a story of success. You need more and more organs, and uh, the donor pool is the same, or it it gets even smaller, especially in Germany. No way in the future there will be enough hearts to just uh, suffice uh, the needs.
4: It's because of this problem that Bruno became interested in a new type of heart transplant.
1: Uh, I'm involved in the field in um, xeno heart transplantation, since 1998.
4: Xenotransplantation is transplanting an organ from one species into another. In particular, Bruno works with pig hearts, and his trials are not using humans, but baboons. Bruno's hope is that in the future, pig organs could be used for life-saving transplant surgeries.
1: Because the heart is only a pump, a muscle, contracts, pumps, blood. It's a beautiful, a beautiful muscle. No no technician can uh, can make a machine which lasts for 90 years or so, 80 years. It will just break, fall apart. Nothing will happen when you implant a non-human heart.
4: Xenotransplantation is exceedingly complicated. Human immune systems have evolved to reject foreign bodies, and it's taken decades to overcome these issues for human heart transplantation. Trying to achieve the same when the donor is of a different species, some have said would be impossible.
1: It's actually very difficult, and that's the reason why uh, very smart people said it's not possible. Uh, the peaks were on on our earth approximately 90 million years earlier and then uh, th- th- that's a difference in the evolution between uh, uh, the animals then and the humans.
4: Despite the difficulties, Bruno and his team from Munich have now demonstrated the most successful trials to date. Again, not in humans but in baboons. The transplanted pig hearts kept the baboon subjects alive for more than 3 times longer than ever before, and this has raised the eyebrows of some others working in the field. Here's Christoph Gnossele from the German Heart Center in Berlin, who was not involved in the work.
2: I realised that it is uh, really a a major step forward in in heart xenotransplantation. The group from Munich was was able to uh, produce really a a sustained survival of uh, of more than half a year. Before that, in this life-supporting transplants Uh, The the longest, you know, it was a single longest uh, transplant was uh, 57 days.
4: In order to achieve this, Bruno and his team pulled together various techniques, some of which had been used by other groups, genetically modifying the pig donors and applying bespoke immunosuppression protocols to the baboons. They also needed to stop the hearts growing to their full size. Pigs are much larger than baboons, and so a full-sized heart would not fit into the chest cavity and would fail. Additionally, pigs have lower blood pressure than baboons as they stand on all fours, and so Bruno and his team had to use drugs to thin the baboon's blood to compensate. And finally, they changed the protocols surrounding the surgery itself. Pig hearts, it seems to Bruno, react differently to human hearts when it comes to transplants.
1: I think um, porcine hearts, they look like human hearts or like primate hearts, but They uh, they don't don't resist uh, ischemia. Ischemia is a time when a heart is not supplied by oxygen and nutrition. And uh, so they are more vulnerable. And that was uh, a big surprise.
4: Bruno used a machine designed by a Swedish group, which bathed the donor pig hearts in an oxygenated solution and before transplant, kept them a bit warmer than in previous attempts, at about 8 degrees centigrade. This helped prevent ischemia, which can lead to damage in the heart. Bruno described the surgery.
1: Then they bring in the heart, and then they do the anastomosis, the left atrium, the right atrium, the pulmonary artery, and then they remove the air. It doesn't bleed, because they have done it very meticulously. And you open the clamp and the heart is getting pink and it starts beating. That's for me, it's amazing.
4: The survival of the baboon subject could be a significant step towards human trials of xenotransplantation. But there's still a lot of work to be done, and exactly how a human would react is still unclear. Here's Christoph again.
2: As it is not tried right in humans, of course, this is not sure, because there are um, hormone uh, incompatibilities which play a role. So researchers worldwide, also with other organs uh, facing uh, this problem,
4: there are also other concerns to overcome, like viruses found in pig DNA, which could possibly be transmitted to humans through a transplant. In particular, a family of porcine endogenous retroviruses known as PERVs. PERVs made the headlines last year when researchers demonstrated the use of CRISPR to edit PERV genes, but the problem remains to be completely solved. And underlying all of this work, there's a whole plethora of ethical conversations that need to be had surrounding xenotransplantation. So, a lot of work to look out for in the future. But the science is progressing, so who knows? Perhaps in the near future, you'll be listening to this podcast reporting the first successful xenotransplantation, and with it, the next step in medical science. That was Noah Baker. In his
3: report, you also heard from Bruno Reichart and Christoph Knosella. You can read Bruno's paper and Christoph's News and Views article over at nature.com slash news.
0: Later in the show, Nisha Gain will be joining us with an update on the latest science stories that's coming up in the news chat now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read this week by Ali Jennings.
5: Prehistoric people may have been partial to a spot of caviar. Excavations at an ancient campsite in what is now Germany yielded pieces of poorly washed pottery that still retain residues of Neolithic carp roe. Researchers wanted to get an idea of exactly what was on the menu, But reconstructing a recipe from remains dating back to roughly 4,000 BC is hardly a piece of cake. To determine the details of the archaic cuisine, the team analysed 6,000-year-old proteins that had been burnt onto pieces of prehistoric pot. Some of the proteins they discovered are common in fish eggs, whilst others are found in fish flesh. So the hungry hunter-gatherers may have cooked fish broth in a pot. And microscopic plant remains found around the pot's rim suggest that they used leaves for a lid. Get a taste of that research over at PLOS One. Thanks to climate change, the chance of a given region on Earth being both warmer and drier than the historical average is now much higher than it has been in previous years. Predicting the joint occurrence of these kind of climate stresses is hard to do, but a team of Stanford scientists have attempted it by comparing conditions calculated by climate models to temperatures recorded all the way back to 1931. And what they found was it's now twice as likely that during a single year some places on Earth will experience weather both hotter and drier than the historical average. The research also showed that extreme heat and drought are more likely to affect multiple major agricultural areas in the same year. This suggests that the global supply chain of food could become disrupted. The one potential ray of sunshine is that we can reduce the risk of such simultaneous events if we successfully cut greenhouse gas emissions in line with the Paris Climate Accord. If you've warmed to this story, you can find the research over at Science Advances.
0: It's estimated that there are more bacteria on Earth than there are stars in the universe, including the many which live in or on the human body. But life isn't easy in a bacterial world. They have their own invaders, attackers and mortal enemies. In particular, special kinds of bacteria-targeting viruses known as bacteriophages. In their evolutionary battle with these phages, bacteria have developed many weapons – and a paper out in Nature this week has been exploring some new ones. I spoke to author Karen Maxwell and started off asking her why she thinks bacteriophages are such an important area of research.
6: Bacteriophages are thought to be the most numerous biological entity on Earth, and they play really important roles in controlling bacterial populations in the environment and within
0: the human body. Does that mean I'm full of bacteriophages right now?
6: You are full of bacteriophages right now, so you have about 10 times more phages in your body than you have bacterial cells. And we know that they're playing really important roles in controlling bacterial populations in the human microbiome. So there have been a number of studies where people have looked at antibiotic delivery and how that affects the bacterial populations in the body, and also how it affects the phage populations in the body. There also have been a couple of studies that have come out recently looking at inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease and colitis. And so it's thought that the phages may be playing roles that are contributing to these kinds of inflammatory bowel diseases.
0: So because we have all these bacteria inside us, either causing infections or the sort of healthy part of our microbiome, there's this whole complex ecosystem. And if we're not looking at the bacteriophages as well, then we're just missing a huge part of the picture.
6: Yes, absolutely. And you know, with increasing rates of antibiotic resistance, people are really thinking about using phages for therapies. And there have been a couple of big cases in the US recently where they have successfully used phages as a therapeutic. But I think we need to be keeping in mind that they they do carry antibiotic resistance genes, they can carry toxin genes, and so it's really a double edged sword.
0: So what bacteria were you studying and what's its ecosystem like? What's the world like for this bacteria?
6: Yeah, so streptomyces are a kind of bacteria that live in the soil and they actually are the bacteria that make soil smell like soil. So there's other bacteria in the soil that they have to compete against. There are yeast, there are parasites, and of course they're thought to be outnumbered by phages, this viral enemy, by a factor of 10. And it's well known that streptomyces produce a lot of what are known as secondary metabolites. These are small molecules that help them gain a competitive advantage in the soil environment. And it's estimated that streptomyces produce on the order of about 100,000 different antimicrobial compounds. And these have been shown to have activity against other bacteria, against fungus, and against other parasites that are in the soil, but no one had ever looked to see if
0: they had any activities against phages in the past. But there are bacterial defense mechanisms against phages that we do know about. We do, but all of those defense systems
6: are based on proteins. And It really makes sense that bacteria, particularly streptomyces, that produce so many of these small molecules, that they do encode a chemical defence against phage infection.
0: So the bacteria are using everything at their disposal, proteins and small chemicals, to, to fight the phages. And so how did you start investigating these chemical weapons?
6: I just had graduate students and undergraduate students go out and collect dirt samples from a variety of different places And then we brought the dirt samples back to the lab, and we isolated phages from them. And then what we did was we took this collection of phages, and we started screening extracts that we made from different streptomyces strains to see if they had anything in them that could inhibit phage replication. And what we found was that a lot of streptomyces strains actually produce some kind of compound that protects them from
0: phages. So you've taken small molecules that have been secreted by streptomyces and then tested them against the phages and out of the ones that that did work, was there any kind of pattern that you noticed? Absolutely, there was. So what we discovered was that the active compounds that we were
6: discovering are a class of molecules known as DNA intercalators. And so these molecules actually bind to DNA and prevent it from being transcribed or translated. So prevent the genes from being expressed. And so streptomyces are producing these molecules that seem to be preferentially binding to the phage DNA at the concentrations that they're produced inside the cell. And and they prevent the DNA from being able to carry out any of the functions that are required for the phage to survive. But one really interesting thing, actually, is that these DNA intercalating molecules, they actually are fantastic anti-cancer agents. And People's actually, back in the 1960s, they used phage replication in E. coli as a way to screen for anti-tumor agents. And they discovered a lot of commonly used chemotherapeutics in this manner. But at the time, nobody thought to really think about why are streptomyces producing
0: anti-cancer agents. So now that you've, you've shown that these molecules are part of the phage defense system, does that provide some, some new opportunities for using these chemicals?
6: There's a lot of interest in trying to find new active molecules and people are starting to do a lot of screening of different secondary metabolites that are produced by bacteria. And I think this gives us a new way of finding new anti-tumor agents.
0: And now you have a whole new area of bacterial defence, which if you if you continue looking at these systems you could find even more molecules and chemicals which could be medically useful.
6: Yes. So along with the anti-cancer drugs, of course, these could be great to be used as antiviral agents in humans as well for therapeutics.
0: And what's your personal next step in exploring this.
6: So we are currently exploring the production of other types of small molecules. I'm really interested in discovering the diversity of molecules that actually provide antiphage resistance. So that's one area of research. And we are also interested in branching out into other bacteria. So how commonly are these antiphage compounds produced and how many different species of bacteria
0: produce them? That was Karen Maxwell from the University of Toronto, Canada. You can find Karen's paper at nature.com forward slash nature.
3: Finally then on the show, it's that time where we chat about the news, the news chat. And uh, and I'm joined here in the studio this week by Nisha Gained, European Bureau Chief here at Nature. Hi, Nisha. Hi, Ben. So we've got two stories today, Nisha, in, in the Middle East. And our first story is a, is a conservation story, but not maybe sort of conservation in the ecology sense.
7: Yes, this is a really interesting story about a group of researchers who have gone to Jordan and they're looking at how conflicts have damaged some of these very important ancient heritage sites in the Middle East.
3: And this isn't using satellite images to get an overall picture of an area. It's, uh, it's really zooming in on the finer details. Where is this work taking place?
7: These researchers are actually looking at a site in Jordan called Wadi Rum and it's the site of lots of different types of prehistoric settlement and there's some beautiful rock art and lots of these have got bullet holes in them. There's actual physical holes in the rock. So this team of researchers that is UK based is trying to see how things like bullet holes impact rock and how this rock is damaged further by uh, weathering processes.
3: Right. and, And how are they doing this then?
7: So there are two parts to their research project. And the first bit was uh, the research team going to Jordan and looking at these various paintings and engravings and pieces of archaeological remains and making some very intricate measurements. So, for example, they measured how hard the rocks are, how resistive they are, their permeability. And they looked at these measurements at actual points of impact. So, for example, where a bullet might have hit the rock. And then the second part is researchers in the lab actually sort of simulating this process, so using guns and shooting at different types of rocks, and comparing these two different bits of data to try and estimate how rocks might degrade further.
3: All right, so a little bit CSI then, I suppose, in the lab and uh, and sort of. I mean, I guess not all bullets are created equal. I mean, what sort of sort of differences have they seen?
7: So that's a really interesting thing about this site in Jordan is that there's. A huge range of different types of bullet impacts. There are older bits of damage from much older types of guns like muskets, which have bigger munitions, and damage from much more recent guns like AK-47s that they think has been caused in the past few months. In previous research, the team found that bullets from a twenty two calibre gun changed how stone reacted uh, to changes in moisture and temperature, uh, which exacerbated the deterioration.
3: You mentioned the team is from the UK. I mean, are they working with sort of populations in, in the local vicinity to to aid, aid in their studies or anything like that?
7: Yes. So this team is led by Lisa Moll, who is at the University of West England. And the team has worked with um, some local experts and also spoken to lots of local residents to see what their views are about this bullet damage. And there are some really interesting opinions. For example, some residents say that they don't want bullet holes to be repaired and that they should stand as a warning against vandalism or all the conflicts that cause them
3: right well what about this work Nisha I mean it's early but where does it lead
7: so ultimately the team wants to develop some guidelines for people who are on the ground and that might be in Jordan or anywhere in the world where these heritage sites exist Um, and they want people to record and communicate damage that they might see to these to these ancient sites and use that information to work out how to conserve them.
3: Okay, well, let's move on to our second story today, Nisha. And uh, we're going to go to Iran, where some people are getting a bit of a sinking feeling.
7: Yes, Tehran is sinking. The Iranian capital is experiencing some of the highest rates of subsidence in the world.
3: And are we talking visible levels of sinking?
7: Yeah, this is pretty visible. Um, So what we have here is some some new research from satellite images that show the extent of Tehran's uh, sinking. And in some places, it's as much as 25 centimetres a year.
3: Right. I mean, I'm pulling up an imaginary sort of 30 centimeter rule. That's, that, that is a not insignificant amount. I mean, ha- how is this happening?
7: There are lots of different things to contribute to this phenomenon, sinking or subsidence. Um, and one of them is sheer population. Uh, Tehran is the biggest city in Western Asia. There are about 13 million people. And as urban sprawl spreads, it means that there are increased pressures on groundwater and oil and gas and other resources. uh, And it all encourages this sinking.
3: Well, what does this mean then for the people living in Tehran right now?
7: So this study, which is going to be published in a journal called Remote Sensing of Environment, Pretty much puts data on a problem that is very visible uh, in Tehran. Huge fissures, some of them which are several kilometers in length and and a couple of meters wide, are opening up in the southeast of Tehran. And there are also just visible cracks in streets, shifted curbs, uh, cracks in walls, and tilting buildings. And as well as all of that, we hear a story from a farmer who fell into a six meter deep crack. And these cracks are actually pretty serious for farmers because they drain irrigation water and they leave their ground really parched.
3: I mean, this isn't sounding good at all, Nisha, but I mean, is there anything that can be done to sort of reverse this or or to stop it getting any worse?
7: So the answer to that is pretty bleak, according to this study, and it's that authorities are fighting a losing battle here uh, as they try to regulate water extraction. A lot of the sinking that has already happened is thought to be
3: irreversible. Well, very concerning and certainly something to keep an eye on. Nisha, thank you very much for joining us. And listeners, if you'd like more of the latest science news, head over to nature.com slash news.
0: That's it for this week's show. We'll be back with another edition of the Nature Podcast next week. But before we go, there's just time to remind you about our sister podcasts from Scientific American. You can catch them over at scientificamerican.com forward slash podcasts or wherever you find your shows. I'm Sharmini Bundell.
3: And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time.
0: the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com/plus.